Welcome to This is the Jet Life with Dan Burnham, your guide to the New York Jets sports and much more. And now, your host, Dan Burnham. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This is the Jet Life. Today, we have a surprise podcast drop as I am joined by the host of the Locked On Jets podcast, the manager of the gangreennation.com website, the boss man himself, John B. Welcome, John. Thank you for coming here. Well, Dan, it's great to be here. I always enjoy chatting about the Jets with you. Absolutely. I think the last time we did this was on your podcast about a year ago, and we were doing the exact same thing, talking about the draft and where the team was headed and how times have changed. I know. It's amazing. And, you know, I think it's been a tough year for, to be a Jets fan. I mean, it's been a tough year in general, but Jets had a difficult 2020, but I think things are looking up now. I completely agree, and I can't wait to get your thoughts on you know the draft. We're going to focus on that. I want to take a quick moment to just spotlight the work that you do because there are not many people that are running a website, posting articles, and doing daily podcasts every single day. Lockdown Jets is the podcast. GangreenNation.com is the website. And I uh, just want to say that we appreciate it, all the work that you put in. It's good to have Jets fans like this around. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. And I think you do a fantastic job with your show. I'm a big fan. So I, I send the same thoughts to, towards you. Well, thank you. So before we get into it here, you're here to talk draft 2021. I just want to go over some quick news that's going on with the Jets. To start, the Jets claim wide receiver Matt Cole off of waivers. He was a wide receiver for the 49ers. He only played in one game last year, 16 snaps on special teams. He looks to be a back-end wide receiver battle in training camp, and we'll see if he ends up making the roster, but one more guy brought in there. And then two guys leaving the Jets, linebackers Harvey Lange, was signed to a one-year deal by the Patriots, and Neville Hewitt, signed to a one-year deal with the Texans. Both of these teams we play this year, so we will be seeing both of those guys again. And on one-year deals, you never know if they're going to come back to the Jets in the future, but... Oh man, the, the Neville Hewitt revenge game. <laughs> right. That's gonna be that's gonna be intense. <laughs> Penciling that one in right now. Um, I actually liked Neville Hewitt. And I'm gonna kind of miss him because you know he was not great in coverage or anything, but he was one of the best tacklers. I still think that he was one of the best form tacklers I've ever seen in the Jets. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, for a backup linebacker, I thought he did a pretty serviceable job considering what he was thrown into the last couple of years. Yeah, he was at one point like linebacker six, and then when every single guy went down, it was like, all right, Neville. Guess it's you. And, you know, he kept the job for a while. He was one of the top tacklers in the league last year, and he always was there on game day. So so maybe we should focus more on, on the Harvey Longy revenge game. <laughs> yeah, we get to play him twice, so if he, if he gets us once, we have another chance. <laughs> that will be the Harvey Longy revenge revenge game. Right, depending, depending on how it goes, we'll see. But, uh, you know, leave it up to Bill Belichick to take one of the former Jets and see what he can do with him. Hopefully he's not a nightmare for us. Can only hope here. Well, you know, I mean, it's amazing as Jets fans the frustration we have with New England and the fear. I feel like we're kind of intimidated by New England because for how many Jets go up to play for the Patriots, how many of them have actually been good when they went to New England? I mean, Danny Woodhead, I guess, was decent, but even then, like, I feel like he was kind of overrated for what he brought to the Patriots. So, as much as we've had. You know, as much as New England's beaten us, as much as we've been tortured by that franchise, and as much as like we always fear that like Jets are going to go to New England, there really are not many examples of guys who have gone there and made us pay. It's true, and there I just thought of like a bun- bunch of them as you were saying that, and it's like, yeah, none of them really did end up hurting us. But I just worried that they're just giving the secrets 
of the Jets away. They're just this is everything that happened there. The second they get they're afraid of Bill Belichick, they bring him into the office. They're like, tell us everything. And these guys are just trying to make a roster spot. And Harvey Lane, he just discloses everything Brant Boyer's ever done on special teams. <laughs> Dan, we're turning the page. This is a new era. Okay. This is a new era for the New York Jets. We are finally going to overcome the Patriots. You're absolutely right. And I look forward to that. And kind of in uh, in line with that is the last bit of news is that we have the NFL schedule release set for tomorrow, Wednesday, May 12th at 8 p.m. And so next week's podcast is going to focus on that. I still will be doing one on it's going to be either the 17th, 18th, or 19th, depending on my new softball schedule that is changing all the time with rain. But uh, that's going to be with focus of next week. And that's all I got for news. We can now talk NFL draft. My first question for you, John, is when the draft was going on, how did you feel about it in real time as they were making their picks? And has that changed at all over the past week as you've had a chance to kind of digest it all? Well, you know, first of all, I, I think we want to hear more about your softball schedule, Dan. Um, <laughs> I actually, I want to know if there's a podcast covering your softball team. Maybe I'll volunteer to host it. There is not. There is not. We are the five churches uh, sponsored by them here in Connecticut. It's a brewery, and I drink plenty of beer from them on the podcast and talk about it. So that's their shout-out for it. And other than that, they just affect when I can record and not. But Anyway, so, so to answer your question, uh, you know, I think whenever you're making three of the first 34 picks, you should be very excited about what your team's doing. And I liked what the Jets did a lot. You know, when you could, when you break offensive football down to its most basic elements, there really are kind of like four roles. You have a quarterback, you have guys who run the ball, you have pass catchers, and you have blockers. And with their first four picks, the Jets got one of each. And if you've watched this Jets team over the last decade, you know that this is a team that has consistently struggled on offense with a few exceptions. You know, you have the year with Ryan Fitzpatrick and Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker and Chris Ivory, but it's been tough to watch this team on offense for years. And it feels like this may have been the year where the Jets finally invested in the offense and maybe they built their offense in the future. And, you know, a lot of that goes with the quarterback they drafted, Zach Wilson. And, you know, we, we were, we went through this three years ago. We were all very excited, at least for the most part about Sam Darnold. We were all very optimistic and obviously, it did not work out. Some of, for some, some of the reasons I would argue were not really Darnold's fault. So, I think you know maybe there's a little bit of trepidation in the back of everybody's mind. But Zach Wilson's a really talented guy. You know, he's got a ch- chance to be really good. And the fact that the Jets, the Jets invested in an offensive lineman and a wide receiver and a running back in the draft, not to mention, you know, the receiver they took last year in Denzel Mims, the fact they signed Corey Davis, even the fact they signed Keelan Cole, they're putting in sign and bringing in Michael Ford. It's all a quarterback friendly offense. Zach Wilson's going to be in a better situation on day one than Sam Darnold ever was. And I know it's controversial. I would argue Sam Darnold was never really given a fighting chance. They are not making the same mistake with Zach Wilson. So, as much as you may be nervous about the idea that we just went through this three years ago, we took a quarterback who was supposed to be great and wasn't great. The situation's different. And just because things did not work out with Sam Darnold, it doesn't mean it's going to play out the exact same way with Zach Wilson. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And uh, I'm super excited about it as well. Like you said, just looking at the people that they drafted, going quarterback, going offensive lineman, wide receiver, running back. It's weird because over the years we had Mike McCagden, he drafted for a while for us, and it kind of felt like he was all over the place in terms of what he was drafting. It was a tight end here, it was a defensive lineman there, and he didn't really ever get a feel for what he was trying to do. 
And I feel like since Joe Douglas has been here, he's kind of had a clear vision of what he wanted to do and how he wanted to build the team. He kind of told us that right away. It's going to start in the trenches. We're going to build the best culture in sports. We're going to get a good coaching staff in here. And then we're going to try to get our quarterback and build around him. And he's literally done all of that stuff. And so I think just from a Jets fan perspective, it's refreshing to see somebody feel like they have control over this thing and be moving in a direction that at least, you know, on paper looks like it benefits the quarterback, which as we know has been the big problem for the Jets over the past you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And you, you look back and I have to admit, this is a total hindsight thing. I did not realize this at the time, but you go back to the beginning of Mike McCagney's tenure, his first draft pick as Jets general manager was Leonard Williams at a time where the Jets had a lot of guys who were similar and very good. And I thought at the time, okay, well, clearly there's a plan here. You know, clearly Mike McCagney and Todd Bowles are on the same page. They're going to figure out how to maximize all these guys, get them all onto the field. And you know, you look back and you you know you look at what they did with Sheldon Richardson. They had him playing as a stand-up outside linebacker at points. It became clear that like and McCag- I think I remember there was a quote McCag. I don't remember the exact quote, but he essentially said, "We just pick guys and we we figure it out from there." And you're right; they never felt like there was a, a plan in place. It never felt like Bowles and McCagney were on the same page. You know, the one I always go back to, and this was not a major move; this was a small move, but. I don't know if you remember when the Jets traded for Rashard Robinson. I believe it was in 2017, right at the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. And Bowles, mm-hmm. Bowles was doing a press conference when they did it. Bowles had no idea that the Jets traded for this guy. It was almost like Bowles had no idea who this guy was. And the Jets brought the Jets made this deal for him. Um, and, you know, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying that McCagney and Adam Gase were never on the same page. I mean, they could not even make it to their first training camp together. It just does, it does, you're right. It seems like there's a clear vision. It feels like, you, you see what Joe Douglas wants to do. You, feel, you see what he prioritizes. And, you know, look, the plan, there are two, there are two, I view it as like there are two aspects of being a general manager. There's having a good plan and then there's executing the plan. And having a good plan itself is not that meaningful because you can have the greatest plan in the world. If you don't know how to get, how to execute it properly, if you don't know how to evaluate talent and bring in the right players, it's not going to work out. You know, I would argue that if you go back to John Idzik, in very broad strokes, John Idzik actually had a decent plan. The problem was like the implementation where he just could not evaluate prospects. He did not bring in the right people for his, he may not have been allowed to bring in the right people for his front office. So, you know, you can't, you can't just say because they're, the plan is good, it's going to work out, but you need to have, if you have, if, this has any chance of working out, you need to have a good plan. And I think that the plan looks pretty good. Yeah, I'm right with you. And uh, it is kind of refreshing, as I said, just to see it and kind of at least believe right now, you know, we're always optimistic. At least I am always optimistic about the Jets because I have to be. I'm going to be watching and talking about it, so I might as well be optimistic. But um, it really feels like a real thing now. And this draft class is a big reason why. And I want to start with the quarterback who was, you know, the face of the franchise, the big move, Zach Wilson at number two. My big thing is we've had Mark Sanchez, Christian Hackenberg, Geno Smith, Sam Darnold, Chad Pettit. You can go through the list. Tons of guys drafted, and they've all failed for different reasons, be it injuries, coaching staff, the team around them. When you look at Zach Wilson, the team that we have, obviously you can't expect the world from him because he's just a rookie, but what are some benchmarks that you'd be looking at either statistically or from a win perspective or from just like how he handles himself to say that, yeah, after one year with this whole new team and a whole new scheme installed, He's doing a good job. So it's a tough question to answer because this is kind of a different year in the NFL because now you're playing 17 games. 
which it makes it a little difficult to talk about statistically what you're looking for. I have tend to have very low expectations for rookies. You know, there's been a lot of talk. I, you know, I interact with Jets fans on a daily basis. I've seen some people talk, you know, can he be the first Jets quarterback since Joe Namath throw for 4,000 yards? Can he win rookie of the year? And look, he's the second pick in the draft. There's a pretty good chance he could win rookie of the year. But I don't like putting those expectations on him because it kind of implies if he doesn't do those things that he's a failure. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, Wilson comes out of a, you know, a college at BYU and it wasn't his fault. They did not play a tough schedule last year. And it, the, the interesting thing is that BYU originally actually was supposed to play a very tough schedule, but they were an independent. And because of the pandemic, a lot of conferences eliminated, a lot of schools eliminated their non-conference games. So people have used that as a knock on Wilson. And I don't think it's fair because I think you can isolate the things the quarterback does well and does poorly. Now that said, I mean, he did not face the toughest defenses. He did not face the most complex defenses last year. That's not, again, that's not, that's not something he can control, but I think it does mean there's going to be a little bit of a, bit, a little bit of an adjustment period. When he enters the NFL, he's going to see more complex schemes than he's seen in the past. He's going to see guys, you know, some of the tight window throws he, he was able to make last year at BYU might be tougher to make this year. And the reason I'm saying this is not to knock Zach Wilson. It's just to say there could be growing pains and that's okay. I mean, really, when I when I look at a rookie quarterback, yes, it would be great if he went out and threw for 4,000 yards. It would be great if he was rookie of the year. And again, second overall pick, it's possible. But what I really want from a rookie is just look like you belong most weeks. I mean, there are going to be some disaster games, but don't look like you're in totally over your head. I, I remember a couple of years ago, the Jets played Washington, and Wayne Haskins was playing for them. And you could just see this guy could not play in the NFL. You could just see the guy was just totally lost. Um, you know, another guy I think about is Trubisky and like, I saw Trubisky play as a rookie. I know they won the division his second year and some people, because the team was having success, people thought, you know, well, maybe he's not that bad. But I mean, I remember for like the first time I watched Trubisky, you could see that like, it just was not clicking for him in the NFL. So I want to see a guy who doesn't look totally lost. I want to see Wilson get better as the season goes on. I mean, I want to see a guy who is a better quarterback in December, a guy who by the time December comes around looks like a, a credible NFL starter. So I guess, you know, it's difficult to say, say statistically, I'd like to see him kind of like middle of the pack, you know, in that range and somebody who's on an upward tra trajectory. And I think the expectations have to be higher for Wilson than they were Sam Darnold's rookie year, because the situation Wilson's in is just better. And that's a good thing. You know, you looked at what Darnold had his rookie year. I remember saying this, I remember writing this at the time that, it was going to be tough for Darnold because the Jets did not have a very good roster around him. The Jets have done, a, I think, a pretty good job of giving Wilson a fighting chance. So I think with that comes maybe greater expectations where maybe I was expecting Darnold to just show some flashes here or there. I want Wilson to look like a credible NFL quarterback. Most you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a game or two where he looks terrible, but I want him to look like a credible NFL quarterback most weeks. You know, what does that look like statistically? It's you know, it's tough to say. It's one of those things where it's kind of You'll know it when you see it. Yeah, I kind of broke that down as I'm looking for the exact same thing, I think, because statistics are difficult. And, yeah, you'd like to be, you know, more touchdowns than turnovers would be great. But I think one of the things that kind of goes in line with what you're saying is to see him sacked less than, I mean, the number would be 40, I guess. But now with 17 games, it's potentially like 41, 42. The number, I always use that as a benchmark of 40 sacks for your defense would be good. And being sacked less than 40 times for your offense would be, you know, on the right path. I think that, you know, investing in the offensive line and – given he's got some injury 
history and some problems there. We don't want to, to get hit too often. We don't want to be shell-shocked joining into the NFL. And if we could keep him upright, I think that it means, one, that we're blocking well for him and putting him in a good position to succeed, but also that he's getting rid of the ball, going through his reads and everything instead of getting confused and lost. And that's kind of one of the things that you see from a rookie quarterback when they're just struggling and they can't read the field as they're standing back there looking for people and taking sacks and getting hit. So if we can keep that number down, I think that's going to be a pretty good barometer kind of for how he's doing. But again, there are so many other things at play here. And, you know, we know it's you can have one thing and not have another thing, and that's enough to just ruin your entire career. So we got to I'm going to take I'm going to take that 40 sack number. I'm going to start referring to that as the, the Dan number. 40 sacks. Yeah, it's a, I I don't know. It's what my dad always said. 40 sacks. He always Sometimes I don't know if these are real things that I know or if they're just stuff that my dad made up over the years and told me so many times that it's just like, oh, yeah, that's fact now. It's just 40 sacks is the number. But we have a very similar relationship with our fathers then. That's, that's, I, feel like, I feel like I'm reliving a phone call with my dad. Yeah. it's. Uh, I know I hear you on your podcast talking about it too, and it's, it's fun because I do the exact same thing. And I have him on this podcast every single week. Um, he won't join it because... He doesn't want to actually be seen or heard or anything like that, but he will write me an email, and then I get to read it to everybody for his thoughts and everything. And uh, it's always way more optimistic than what I get on the phone. It's always just like, what are you doing? Uh, 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 well, if you ever have your dad on your podcast, like you will get grief from that point forward for never for not having him on all the time. Because that's like I had my dad on the podcast a few years back, and like I still get emails. When's your dad coming back on? When's your dad coming back on? You get should him have on. him on every week. Yeah, get him on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a something that he's trying not to do, but we're having fun with it. And, uh, yeah, I think that's what we'd be looking for in Zach Wilson. When we move to the offensive line that we were just talking about, Elijah Vera Tucker is the big pick. Pick number 14, this is the guy that I really wanted, and I did a podcast before. He was my number one target for 23. Should he fall? I didn't think he would, but you always have to have those just-in-case situations. The Jets trade up to 14. They trade 66 and 86 and the 23rd pick for that number 14 and 143. And... We hear potentially some rumors that the Patriots may have been inter- interested in Elijah Vera Tucker. Had he been on the board at 15, maybe they would have taken him instead of Mac Jones. I've heard that. Don't know what kind of truth there is to it. But how do you feel about the pick in Elijah Vera Tucker, and what do you think about the value that we gave up to get there? Well, you know, I go back to what I said about Joe Douglas, because I think there are kind of two different components in this. You know, you have just the pure value of the picks. And, I mean, if, look, if you're going to be objective, when you make a trade like that, the team that gets 23, 66, and 86 is going to come out ahead more often than the team that gets 14 and 143. But there are scenarios where 14 and 143 win out. When I look at this, the, first of all, I, I really like Elijah Vera Tucker. I think he's going to be a really good guard. And you know, if he turns into a Pro Bowl car, guard, the trade is certainly worth it. But the other thing I look at is this kind of cuts against what Joe Douglas normally does because Joe Douglas is a guy who really values draft picks. He's always trying to add draft picks. He's traded down frequently in the draft. So what that tells me is that Joe Douglas viewed this as a special case that Vera Tucker is, you know, a unique player and that he had to move up to get him. And I think that it was very telling that he moved up when he did because the, the Chargers had just picked the second offensive lineman in the draft. And what that kind of told me is that Joe Douglas viewed the offensive line as having three guys in the top tier. And the other aspect of this is the Jets still had the second pick. This was their second first round pick. They had the second pick in the second round, and they had the second pick in the fourth round. So 
you have the flexibility to make a move like this when you have this much draft capital. Because at the end, the Jets still ended up with better, and they still, you know, they made three picks round five, three picks round six. So at the end of the day, even after making this trade up, even after giving up the third round picks, the Jets still ended with more draft capital than, than they began with. And I think that put, takes some of the pressure off this deal. Now, obviously, you want Elijah Vera Tucker to turn into a pro bowl type guard. But even if you miss on this, this can still be a very successful draft because you have all those extra picks. And that's one of the, the things I like about Joe Douglas's approach is that he acquires these extra picks. And that gives you flexibility. It gives you flexibility to move up. They could have just stayed where they were and ended up with like six of the top 107 picks in the draft. In another scenario where there was a good veteran player available, they could have traded one or a couple of the picks for them. So I like the fact that Joe Douglas gives himself that type of flexibility. You know, if you're sitting there with your normal allotment of draft picks, this is this is a tougher trade to make. But the fact that you have all these extra picks, it kind of frees you up to make a move like this because even you want again, you want Vera Tucker to be successful. Even if he's not, you have enough you have enough other picks that where you can make up for it. And I like this player a lot. So that's kind of my view on it. I mean, did the Jets get great value in the trade? I mean, if you look at the Jimmy Johnson trade chart, they came out a little bit behind. I think the Jimmy Johnson trade chart has shown to be not great judge of value. I think, you know, generally speaking, the perception is that 14 is much more valuable than 23. In reality, history shows us it hasn't played out that way. But again, you know, if you play things out, that's if you play things out 100 times. You're only playing things out once. And, if it's like 70-30 that the trade's bad, there's still going to be thir- still 30% of the time it's going to work out. This may be one of those, one in that 30%, because I think Barrett Tucker can be really good, and I think he has the ability to really j- to justify this move. You know, it's not, I don't think it's the type of move you want to see all the time, but it's not the type of move Joe Douglas has made all the time. He's, you want your general, when, if you, when your team trades up, you, want it to, you don't want it to be the rule. You want it to be kind of the exception. Your general manager picking his spots when there's something truly exceptional there. And it kind of feels like that's what the Jets did. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is that he kind of did that and he found his guy that he wanted to go get instead of just, you know, trading up here, trading up there to find guys. Like, he doesn't usually do this. And to get AVT, I mean, I was really high on him. He was even more high than I was on him. And when you think about just what we're going to be doing, pairing him up next to Becton and having that left side and potentially having this this wall built over there, I call it mountainside on the left, the way that we're going to be running over and over again, going to be a left-handed team, it looks like, for uh, the foreseeable future. But I just, you know, I really like the idea of investing there. We, always, I grew up, when I was a kid, getting Nick Mangold into Brickershaw Ferguson and thinking to myself, like, this is really boring. I wanted to get, like, a Matt Liner or someone that was a big-name guy. And we drafted these people, and my dad's like, no, this is good stuff because you're going to like these guys. When you're 20 years old, you're still going to be watching them play, and it's going to be an important part of the team. And sure enough, these both these guys are awesome, and they were, like, a huge part of my life and made the team good for so long. You know. I, I just recorded one uh, episode of my own podcast where I was speaking with somebody and he made the point about how much he loved those guys. And I had to, I, I've said like, if you're, if you just became a Jets fan within the last few years, it's going to be shocking for you to hear that like 10, 11 years ago, the Jets actually had the best offensive line in the NFL. And it was because of guys like that. And maybe, maybe we are getting back to that now with back-to-back first round picks on the offensive line. That's what I'm hoping, and they just had to plug in a few guys, right? They put in, like, an Alan Fanica, who's an established guy, who we'll be able to find, and Joe Douglas will eventually, you know, he didn't go for Tooney this year, he didn't go for Lindsley or one of those guys, but eventually, if he wants to, and he's got 80% of that line shirt up, and he wants to go after one final guy, we could be close to having one of the best lines in the league. It all comes down to Beckton, it comes down to Vera Tucker and everything, but it's just nice to see that and put Zach Wilson in a great place. 
and the great offensive lines in this league, they're not built overnight. It's, it's an investment this year, an investment next year. You know, it's, it's, it, they, they are built over years and you have to consistently invest in them. And that's something I find very encouraging. And listen, I'm not, I tend to not be a big fan of trading up, but prior to this draft, because there were rumors that the Jets were going to move up in 23 and for what the Jets were looking for, 23 was not a great spot to be at. So it was either a situation where you were going to probably look to trade up or trade down. I said, you know, generally I'm not a big fan of trading up, but the two positions where I can live with a trade up are offensive line and corner. Corner, obviously, because it's just such a glaring need and such an important position, but offensive line, because that's another, that's a second investment after Beckton last year. And now it really starts to feel like we're building something up front. Yep. Yeah, I'm right there yep. with you. And then on top of that, after doing that move, he goes with another offensive player, Elijah Moore, wide receiver out of Ole Miss. And this is one that was a little shocking to me because, you know, we had a lot of time to really think about the following day's pick. And for me, Elijah Moore was, he was on the list, but he wasn't very high up. And he was a guy that I personally had a little later on. Um, and then since then, I've watched interviews on this. I, I kind of had to re- reverse what I'd said because of my podcast before. I was like, I don't really want Elijah Moore in this spot. And then we draft him and then... I look him up and I see what kind of guy he is. And this guy looks like he could potentially be the heart and soul of the team for however long he's on it. I mean, he's a great character. He works super hard, super ambitious. And he's one of those guys that, yeah, he says these things and it might sound cliche and everything, but you can tell that he means it. And when you see the way the coaches love him and his teammates have loved him, you know, you believe it even more. So I'm excited about the pick and what it's going to do. But the question is to me, when you've got Crowder on the team right now playing, you know, I, probably the same position in slot receiver. You've got Berrios there as well. Both of them have contracts that are expiring next year in 2022. Berrios is due $850,000 this year, not guaranteed. Jameson Crowder is due like 11.3, 1 million guaranteed. They could save like $10 million by cutting him. How do you think this is all going to shape up? Because you had Braxton Berrios returning punts. Elijah Moore could potentially return punts instead, but then you're asking basically a first round, essentially draft pick to be back there in a dangerous spot, returning punts as a rookie. And then you got Jamison Crowder, and he's one of the most, you know, consistent weapons that we have and a guy that would make Zach Wilson's transition much easier. But you've only got so many roster spots, and do you want to keep all these slot guys? It's just help me sort this thing out. What do you think they're going to do? Are you a fan of Braxton Berrios? I am a fan of having him as the backup slot guy. If Elijah Moore becomes the starter, having him return the punts to save Elijah Moore that duty and then having him on the roster, because I think that he has shown up in big situations. I think that there's been times when we had nobody and he was like, Hey, at least somebody's making a play. We've got these Josh Malone's they're back in camp. Vincent Smith's back in camp. We've got all these people that never did anything and really showed up in a big way. And Braxton Berrios has, and has caught all of the punts. (laughs) What do you think about him? Oh, man, because I was about to say some not very nice things about Braxton Barrios. So I guess I have to temper my my statements here. I mean, he's okay as a punt returner. I mean, I I don't think he brings a whole lot to the table. Um, Now, do you have Elijah Moore return punts? My issue is not so much that it's a dangerous spot because my view is like Elijah Moore is on this team to make plays with the ball in his hands. And this this is my view. Like maybe this view is wrong, but like, I have a big issue, like when you have like a defensive player. I, like there were points where the Jets had Darrell Revis return punts, not that often, but there were there were a couple times where the Jets had Revis return yeah. punts. And if you go back to his college days, there was actually like this, this spectacular punt return. You could look it up on YouTube. They had at Pittsburgh against West Virginia in 2006. <laughs> so you know he had the ability to, the ability to do it. But my view was like, and I'm not saying this is right, but my view is like 
Revis is on the team, his value to this team is at shutting down the other team's best receiver. Him returning punts is putting him at risk. For a guy like Elijah Moore, an offensive player, my view is his job is to make plays. So putting him in a situation to make plays, I get that it's not the same thing as lining up in the slot, but I don't have as big of an issue with it. Now, what concerns me a little bit is I've had my heart broken by so many rookie punt returners through the years where you know somebody was supposed to be a great punt returner and it's been a disaster. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, Dan. This started back in 2005 with Justin Miller who pretty much lost the, the, game, the Jets a game against the Jaguars. I think it was like the third week of this. It was a disaster of a game because Jets uh, starting quarterback, Chad Pennington and backup quarterback, Jay Fiedler, both suffered season ending injuries, but they lost that. I mean, I guess it didn't matter because like the season was over anyway, but they lost that game in part because they had the rookie return guy, Justin Miller. And, you know, you look through the years, Kyle Wilson was humped as it was, uh, was uh, pumped as a pumped up as a big punt returner. Uh, Jeremy Curley, who, you know, at least, could catch the ball, couldn't do much else, but could make a fair catch. Jalen Saunders. So I'm always from this from now on. I mean, Trenton Cannon a few years back. So from now on, I will always be hesitant to trust a rookie punt returner. But I mean, I think you put him out there in preseason and you see like whether he can do it or not, and you see whether he struggles once you get into like the stadium. Um, I, I'm not that worried about the punt return situation, though. I mean, I I, I don't want to be mean to Barrio since you, I guess you're a fan, but. Uh, you know, it's not so much that I'm a, I am kind of a fan of him, but just because he was a bright spot at times, he catches the ball every single time. One of the rule of thumbs that my dad has also taught me over the years is that rookies fumble. That's what they do. Rookies come in the game and they fumble it. So you don't put rookies there. But Braxton Berrios was a guy that didn't fumble as a rookie. I think he maybe had one later in the season, but for the most part, he came out there and was ready for the job. And when you look at it, you've got your starting slot receiver. You'd like to have a nice backup. Is he a guy that you could have that's cheap and has played kind of scrappy football? I think so. I think that he's made some plays here and there. He's definitely a guy that you can improve, no question. He's not a guy that I'm, you know, he's never going to be a starting receiver on this team. But to have that be the sixth, seventh receiver and pop in, you know. You, you kind of trapped him there because I just went on this whole thing about how I don't trust rookie punt returners. Now you just brought up the point about how you, you rookies fumble. So I, I feel a little trapped there. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not that worried about Barry. So Crowder's, I think Crowder's a more interesting case. And, it's one of those situations where I think there's there's a distinction between the player and the value. And I, like this is controversial because like I know Jets fans are Jets fans really like Jamison Crowder, and they should because he's been a he's been a really good player for the Jets. He's been one of the rare successful free agent signings. And I mean that. Like he's been he's been as good as he was supposed to be, which has not been true of many Jets free agents. I think there are a couple issues here though. Is first of all, I think in any situation. Crowder at $11 million is not a very good value. Now, there are circumstances where, even though he's kind of an overpay, you still are willing to overpay it to keep him because you, you need him. I think with Elijah Moore, and also there's another factor here, the fact that the Jets also brought in Keelan Cole, who's a pretty solid... Now, listen, Keelan Cole's not a guy I want as my number one receiver, but if he's a depth guy, he's pretty decent. And he costs about half as much under the cap as Crowder does. So I think, you know, and he's also got, I think he's got a little bit more flexibility because he's a guy who can go inside and outside. So without Crowder, you save like $10 million and you still have four guys who are pretty good. Cause you have Corey Davis, you have Mims who hopefully will develop. You have the exciting Elijah Moore and your number four receiver is Keelan Cole. And I understand the idea that you want depth, but I think you have depth. And like, so let's say like somebody gets hurt. 
that means you have Crowder go in as the number three guy instead of Cole. I mean, is Crowder really so much better that he's worth keeping around for? Te- is he ten million dollars better than Cole? I mean, I don't think so. And I mean, the other thing is like, let's say you suffer like multiple injuries, you still have Cole. And like, even if you get to a point where like your third receiver is like somebody who's not that great, like a Barrios, does your does having a bad third receiver really sink your team? So essentially, like you'd have to have like your entire wide receiver position wiped out. To, this is the way I view it, at least. Like, and I know people will disagree with me, but to justify keeping Crowder, you have to get to a scenario where your entire wide receiver position is wiped out by injuries, and like Crowder becomes like the second guy, and like you. you I just it, it, you also have to consider that the Jets are probably going to use their running backs in the passing game as well. So, I mean, it's possible. I, I think like pe- people when they want to keep Crowder, they frame it, it they frame it as do you want to keep a good receiver or not keep a good receiver? But it's more complex than that. And my view on this might be different if the NFL worked the way it used to, and every year you either used your cap space or it disappeared. But you can roll over on used cap space to the next season. So that $10 million you can save by getting rid of Crowder next offseason. I mean, it may not be somebody this year, but next offseason, that could be like a, a starter and a quality role player. Is, you know, would, would, you, would you rather have like a guy who's like kind of an extraneous wide receiver this year who will help you if you're totally decimated by injury at the receiver position? Or would you rather have, if you know what you're doing, a good starter and maybe a quality role player? And I know you may miss on the signings, but... I mean, it just seems like if you're keeping Crowder, your plan A is that the receiver position gets wiped out by injury to me. Now, listen, here's what the other thing I'm going to say, though, is I'm not saying they need to make a decision today. Crowder doesn't have any money guaranteed until week one of the season. So absolutely, you bring him to training camp because maybe in training camp you do get this. Your wide receivers all get get wiped out by injury. That's what happened last year. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you keep Crowder or maybe some other team suffers an injury and suddenly Crowder has trade value and you can get something in return for him. So I'm not saying you do something today. And again, like you may get to a situation in training camp where suddenly you're not as deep as you thought you were and you, you're glad you have Crowder around. But I think if you get to like a point where you're, you're, you're approaching week one and you have this money that's about to be guaranteed and you already have, I mean, at some point you kind of have to prioritize, is, is Crowder at that price worth it considering all everything else you have and considering what you could spend, what else you can use that money on? I mean, I think the answer would probably be no. I think that's a really good point that you could push it to, you know, the very end of preseason. And at that point, you really will get a feel for how Elijah Moore is working with the quarterback and everything. I just, to me, what it comes down to isn't that Jameson Crowder is the number three receiver or anything like that. It's that from what I've seen from the guys that we've had here, we haven't had the best competition in the world at wide receiver. We know that Corey Davis should be an upgrade, but Crowder has been the guy that consistently shows himself as the most valuable player on the field and the easiest to get open, at least with Sam Darnold. Maybe Joe Flacco didn't use him the same, but he was a guy that would always find a way to get open, would make the big catches. He's not a big yak guy, doesn't go super deep down the field, but he was the security blanket, something that you want to get from like a tight end. He just seemed like the guy that when you don't know what to do, just get it to Crowder. And when we were getting Crowder involved, the games were good. And when we couldn't get Crowder involved, it really wasn't all that often. But, you know, that was when the team was struggling. Denzel Mims, he's good here and there. He could get three catches a game. But Crowder was the guy that you could do an entire drive through him. And I like having a guy that I feel like I could run an entire drive through. If they want to take out Denzel Mims, they want to take it. You can't really take out Crowder. Nobody's really proven that they can completely take him out of a game, I don't think. Well, that's one of the things is that it's he's a good player. And that's what makes the decision a little bit trickier is that 
it's not that he's a bad player. I mean, there are plenty of guys I've wanted to, I wanted to see the Jets get rid of through the years just because they could not play. And I mean, I, I've gone on so I think I've gone on some pretty classic rants through the year, or at least what I'd like to consider classic rants through the years on some guys like you know, like a Ryan Griffin or somebody like that who I just think bring nothing to the table. Crowder absolutely brings something to the table. He's a good player. It's more the situation the Jets are in than the player himself. Yeah, I, I totally get you. And the $10 million could end up being super valuable. We have time to figure it out, so we'll see what they end up doing. And then, you know, you never know. Your guy Braxton Berrios may end up getting on the chopping block. <laughs> I mean, now you're, trying, you're now you're talking me into keeping Crowder. The option is the other option is keeping Berrios. Um, but yeah, like, and I think maybe like when I say this, like that's one thing I don't make clear enough is like I'm not saying you make a move today. Like, right. let's see how things play out in training camp. I'm talking more if unless something unexpected happens in training camp. But you know, you it's what I go back to with it's flexibility. The Jets have some flexibility right now, and. It's one of the reasons. It's another one of the reasons I like the signing of Elijah. Sorry, the draft pick of Elijah Moore is. I think sometimes fans and teams view the draft too frequently as a mechanism to pick players at your team's weakest position. What the draft really is is finding finding long term players for your team. You know, was wide receiver the most glaring need on the, on the roster? No, but as you mentioned, Crowder's in his last year. Keelan Cole's on a one year contract. A year from now, the Jets are going to need a, a new a new starting receiver. So I think Elijah Moore could play as a rookie, but even if he doesn't, you know, maybe this could be, you know, if he's, if he's not quite as far along as I thought he was, and you know, you get to training camp, you say, you know what, he can't contribute this year. Maybe we should keep Crowder. Now next year, you don't have as big of a hole because you can count on Elijah Moore to step into the starting lineup. And it's one of the things I like in the NFL is when a team's proactive, when a team addresses a need before it becomes a need, because wide receiver is not a need in 2021 for the Jets, but with all these guys hitting free agency next year, they would need a new starting receiver. So it's kind of, I, I kind of like it when you think ahead like that. Yeah, me too. The, the flexibility is super important. It's going to be a big part of the Jets moving forward because they do have, you know, Keelan Cole is a guy that when I look at him, I see a guy that can play outside or inside, as you said, and basically is the first backup at any position. If Corey Davis goes down, Keelan Cole comes in. If they didn't have a lot more, if Jameson Crowder went down, Keelan Cole would go in. He's that guy that can just fill in in any spot, which is nice to have because, our receiving core every single year seems to get absolutely destroyed and we end up playing. I have seen some of the worst receivers that have ever played in the National Football League start games for the Jets in a season with you have hope for a young quarterback and you're, and you're just like, what are we rolling out here right now? And it's kind of crazy. So the versatility and having the depth there is really important. And I think that he did the same thing with that fourth pick going to Michael Carter out of UNC. And this is a running back that, you know, we've already got some guys there. We have Michael P. Ryan. We've got Ty Johnson. We brought in Tevin Coleman this year and Josh Adams. None of these guys are flashy guys. We're replacing last year. We had Frank Gore and Le'Veon Bell. Neither were efficient. Between Michael P. Ryan and Frank Gore getting a lion's share of the carries, they averaged 3.5 and 3.6 yards per carry, respectively. Now, we've boosted the offensive line, so that should help. But bringing in a guy like this, he seems like Michael Carter, I'm talking about, seems like he could be potentially that that explosive running back that we haven't had in so long. He had some of the most 20-yard runs, if not the most 20-yard runs in all of college football last year. Tons of broken tackles. He's like a game-changing type of guy, even if in a committee of four backs he only gets 11 carries a game, nine carries a game. It looks like he has the potential to break one, and we didn't have any of that last year. Le'Veon Bell, Frank Gore, LaMichael Pirine, nobody was breaking anything. Ty Johnson was the only player that could even get 15 yards downfield. And I'm excited about the pick. What do you think about the running back committee that we're going into the league into the year with. Yeah. To be honest with you, I really did not love what the jets had entering the draft at the running back position. I mean, 
I don't know how much Tevin Coleman has left in the tank. Now, let me say this, like for what the Jets are paying Tevin Coleman, I think it's worth, I think it was worth signing him to see like what he can bring to the table, but I'm not really sure what, what else he has left to, to give. I like Josh Adams, but I think Josh Adams is like kind of a situational player for the Jets. The Jets are kind of moving to the wide zone scheme and Adams doesn't really fit. But there are going to be situations where you need to play power football on the goal line, short yarded situations, trying to protect the lead late in the fourth quarter, where I think Josh Adams will be useful. So I view him as kind of like a part-time player. Aside from that, you know, what what are the Michael P. Ryan? What is Ty Johnson? I, I don't really know. So I think that there were lots of question marks at the running back position. But it was this weird thing for me because as much as I felt like the Jets were not great at running back, I really did not want to see them use an early pick at the position in part because it's just not really a high value position in the NFL. It's kind of become a spot where you, especially in the system, the jets are installing a spot where you can plug in on heralded guys and get production. So actually like when we got to day two of the draft, the jets held had the 34th pick and pretty much the only thing that would have annoyed me is if they had drafted a running back, like I would have been good with a lot of guys that could have picked in that spot, including Elijah Moore. I would have been good if they had traded down maybe and gotten an extra pick. I just would have hated them drafting a running back there. But part of that was like watching the way this draft was playing out. And I felt like there was going to be a good running back there when they picked in the fourth round. And, you know, I, I don't want to use the word steal because this time of year, like every single fan in the NFL thinks like their day three picks were steals. But this was a, this is a guy who for a fourth round pick, I think is going to be a day one starter, which is not the case. And as you mentioned, I mean, he brings a, he brings a, brings a lot to the table that the Jets did not have at the running back position. He brings a playmaking element. I mean, this, I said it earlier, this was the draft where, and you know, you hope, you never know what's going to happen, but this could be the draft we look back on as the one where the Jets really built an offense for the 21st century, where the Jets finally joined the modern NFL and started building an offense that can score points, which is quite a refreshing change of pace. Yeah, I like that. I'm a uh... I'm right there with you. That is, I mean, I always look at the drafts. I feel I can just see myself. I see like, oh, we got 10 starters. Perfect. All these guys are going to be great. And it never really happens that way. But I think that Michael Carter was a great pick, a good guy that was available there. And just like you said, I mean, you don't want to draft a running back early because there are guys that are available later on. And I think that this is the exact example of it. You don't draft a Javante Williams in the second round because Michael Carter could be there in the fourth round. And it happened for us where we got like one of these guys that could potentially be, he could be one of the best running backs in the entire class. We got him in the fourth round. And it has nothing to do with Javante Williams, who I think is going to be a really good back. But you know, here's the amazing thing, Dan, is usually like I come away from the draft and the Jets have done something in the first four rounds, which I absolutely hate. Like, I mean, there were a couple of the third round pick, like I was not a fan of Zaniga last year. I wasn't a fan of James Morgan. I wasn't a fan of P. Ryan. The year before, I really did not like the Lesko pick. I mean, you go back to 2014, Dexter McDuffie. Usually, like, there's some pick. I didn't like Bryce Petty in 2015. At some point in the first four rounds, the Jets have usually done something. And it's usually just one thing. Like, normally, I go in with an open mind on these guys. But there's one pick out there, and I'm just like, why did they do this? This year, I loved everything that they did. I came away thinking, and, you know, part of this is you have three picks in the top 34. Yeah. That helps, yeah. but. I really liked all four of these picks. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, one of the things I always make fun of are like the, the fans who say, we got four day one starters on this team, but I think it's actually possible for the Jets this year. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And honestly, with the guys that we have, we could have more than that. You know, Zach Wilson, you think he's going to be day one, Elijah Vera Tucker day one. We talked about Elijah Moore, how he could find his way starting. Michael Carter could be the best running back in the room, arguably because there's not a ton of competition there. And then you've got all of these guys afterwards. 
that we're going to talk about now. And there were a bunch. We said we drafted like it was five or six or five listed defensive backs in a row. So as it's happening, you're just like safety. Okay, safety. And you, I don't know who all these people are at the time. I knew, you know, Hamza Nazraldine. And I think that was it as they were drafting these players. It's just like, again, again. And you find out afterwards that these guys are going to be kind of shifting some of them to linebacker. Sherwood and Nazraldine are going to shift to linebacker. Most likely, Salah says you've got Michael Carter, who can be either a slot guy or a free safety guy. And then you've got Eccles and Pinnock. Uh, yeah, Eccles and Pinnock. I always get people confused because <laughs> they drafted so many in a row. But, um, you know, those guys are probably going to be cornerbacks. Does any one of those guys stand out to you as a player that you think could be, you know, maybe a better shot than the other guys of being a successful player for the Jets? You know, you get into like round five and the odds are against all of these guys. These guys have all fallen for a reason. There's there's some sort of major question mark around them. But I look to the guy whose major question marks aren't really about his talent and they're not even about his character. You know, sometimes you get into the late rounds and you see a super talented guy who falls because of character concerns and people kind of dismiss that. But that can be a big issue. But Nasrul Dean fell for reasons that are unrelated to any of that. It just fell because he got hurt. He suffered a serious injury, so and he didn't really play much last year. But prior to that, he seems like he was on track to being a really high pick, you know, a very talented guy. Now, of course, there are question marks here. You know, first question is, is he fully recovered from the injury? Is he going to be the guy he was before he got hurt? We don't know that. The second question is, what kind of year would he have had in 2020 if he had not gotten hurt? Because you see it all the time. There are guys who enter the year with first round buzz who fall all the way to day three or undrafted because they don't have the year you're expecting. So he can't guarantee that he was going to have a great year in 2020, but you look at the ability. I mean, you look at the reasons he fell. It's not related to talent. It's not related to character. So, I mean, that's the guy I would probably point to of all the, you know, the five of the six uh, guys the Jets took in round five and round six. And, you know, it's like you said, you, you saw this as it was happening. You see all these guys listed as defensive backs, but, you know, the, the roles guys guys play in the NFL right now are very different. Defensive players tend to be more versatile. They tend to carry many, many different roles. So I think it's kind of a mistake in most cases to look at guys purely as safeties, as linebackers. A lot of these guys are kind of like hybrid players. They play a little bit of what used to be a traditional safety, a traditional linebacker. And the other thing that, that I like about what the Jets did is I think sometimes teams fall into this trap where they're worried about making sure all of their draft picks make the roster. The thing is, like, when, when you have these late-round picks, the odds of them ever contributing in the NFL is not that good. So does it really make a difference if you keep all of your draft picks? Because most of them are going to be cut next year or the year after anyway. And I like the fact that they drafted some guys who may play the same roles and have them compete against each other. Because there's no way both of these guys – I mean, it's very, it's very unlikely that all of these guys are going to turn into quality NFL players eventually. So – they're t- they took a bunch of guys that with traits that they like, and they're going to let them compete against each other and see like which guys rise to the top. So, I mean, from that standpoint, I kind of like what the Jets did on, on day three. You know, we'll see whether these guys, we'll see how good these guys are. But you know, ultimately, I, I think sometimes people get a little too focused on position when yep. it's really about the role, how many different roles you can play, and a lot of these guys can play a lot of different roles. And you know, some of the guys who were drafted to safeties listed as linebackers, they're going to do things that, you know, they're going to have like elements of both in their role. So I think that's something that like maybe people get a little bit too worried about. Yeah. And when you look at it, you got the group of five guys. I mean, if anything stands out to you is like what they all are is they're all versatile. They're all 
exceptional young men, like other scholars, all these people have really good histories of being in school and, and being good team players. So building the best culture in sports is always, and they're fast. These guys ran fast 40 times, or they're going to be moved to a position where, you know, if you're a safety and you're moving to a linebacker position or so on the field, then you're just that much faster than a lot of other people that are playing that. So I think that they focused on those things. They brought these guys in and I kind of like what you're saying of, yeah, they're not all going to be great. And you are going to end up cutting a few of these guys most likely down the road, you're not going to have five of these guys pan out, but you will be more likely to have at least one or two of them pan out from this fast, long, you know, coverage style player that we went after here instead of drafting one tight end, one running back, one this, all late round guys, and then you end up filling no positions. It looks like we will be getting somebody in that, you know, that coverage linebacker nickel safety role, someone in the middle of the field who's going to be covering maybe tight ends, running backs out of the backfield and stuff. Um, or just running fast with receivers on the side. It looks like we maybe will have found somebody. Not entirely sure who it is. I think I'm with you, Hamza Nasruddin. He was a guy that was on me and my dad's list as a guy to draft, so he excites me. And I think when you talk about that potential that he has, we've actually had some success with these similar players. Bless Austin was the same thing a couple of years ago, who actually ended up, whether you love the player or not, for a sixth-round pick, he ended up being pretty good coming back from injury. And then Bryce Hall last year, a guy that slipped in the fifth round, and he was an injured guy who potentially could have been a first or second round pick if he'd not been injured. And he kind of panned out a little bit and ended up being healthy for us. So you kind of have that glimmer of hope. Like, can we do it three times in a row and take one of these quality, you know, defensive back players and move them in? And not only we haven't talked about the greatest matchup in training camp in 2021 for the Jets, which will be Michael Carter versus Michael Carter the second. That's going to be an incredible practice matchup to watch. Yeah, it is. And the two of them played for uh, the same conference, and they know each other. And it's a uh, it's pretty hilarious that yeah, it happens to be Michael Carter the second, and he was drafted second. It just worked out so perfectly that way to have Michael. Can I Carter. can I tell you my terrible joke? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I am very worried about this because anytime a sequel comes out that quickly, usually not that good. <laughs> That is true. In in movie cases, yeah, rushing the sequel. We went for Michael Carter. We were like, you know what? Let's go get another Michael Carter, too. Tons of jokes on draft day of everyone. Just like, it looks like we're getting all the Elijahs and all the Michael Carters that we can get. People people were asking you about what his nickname should be, and I said his nickname is the sequel. That's true. That is a good one. Um, I'm excited for both the players. I'm excited for everybody at this point. You know, sky's the limit for everybody. Unlimited potential. You like to think that your guys are the guys that got it right and everybody was drafted for a reason. And the reason that we took this guy is we saw something that other people didn't see and we're going to harness it. But that's the case for every single player drafted by every single team and all the fan bases. So we'll see when training camps and preseason come and position battles and whatnot who rises to the top. But then away from those guys, we did leave the draft with, it was 11 or 12 undrafted free agents as well. And there were still, as there always is, some good players that people were projecting to be fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh rounders that are available as undrafted free agents. And Joe Douglas goes in, grabs a bunch of guys. He got some offensive linemen. He got some, uh, he got a tight end kicker. He got a couple other players as well. Is there anybody that stands out to you in the undrafted pool? Because I was saying last week on my podcast that every year there is an undrafted free agent that steps up. There always is a guy. There's a Robbie Anderson, a Damon Harrison. There's a, you know, we had Kyle Phillips. We had Bryce Huff. There's always somebody who ends up making the roster that you weren't quite expecting to. Who do you have your eye on in that group of somebody that could potentially be on the roster? Well, I'm going to give the obvious answer and tell you the kicker because when you get to the late rounds or undrafted free agents, like those low value positions like kicker, punter, long snapper, fullback, those are the guys who actually like have the best chance of making it. And it's you know Chris Nagger out of SMU. Yeah, you know, we'll see. 
you can never know. You never know how a kicker is going to translate, but he doesn't have great competition. And kick, you know, like I said, kicker is a position where undrafted free agents can stick in the NFL. And you know, it's difficult to say how good Joe Douglas is so far. I mean, I think the day he was hired, he pretty much had to wait two years before he could do what he wanted to do. I would argue that the team that will take the field week one, 2021, is really the first time you could say Joe Douglas's Jets are taking the field. Mm-hmm. But one area where I don't think he's done a very good job is kicker. And I don't know why he's been so resigned to stick with Sam Thicken. And look, I know everybody's upset because the Jets let Myers go a few years back. But the thing is, like, it's not that hard to find a kicker in the NFL. Like you should be able to find a kicker, you know. Let me let me tell you why I say that. All right, last year, our old friend Nick Folk was available. He was a free agent in August. New England signed him. He made ninety three percent of his field goals last year. Graham Gano, also a free agent in August, Giants got him. Made ninety seven percent of his kickers ninety ninety seven percent of his field goal attempts last year. Matt Gay was available in season when the Rams got him. Made eighty seven point five percent of his field goals. I mean, you think back when the Jets got Myers. Jets got Myers in August. He was a scrap heap signing. Prior to that, they had the year before they had Chandler Cantazero, who did a decent job. Coming off a terrible year with Arizona, Nick Folk, when the Jets got him, he was coming off a horrible year. He was cut by the Cowboys the year before. Uh, the Jets got Jay Feely after Mike Nugent got hurt in season. I mean, Feely was available like after the season had begun. I mean, you know, I, I, and I, I, I'll admit, like I was traumatized. I was one of those Jets fans back who you know, lived through the Doug Bryant game in Pittsburgh. And of course, what followed was like the ultimate overreaction where the Jets use a second round pick on a kicker. So I'm just not a big believer in using big resources to get a kicker. It's not because I think kickers aren't valuable. It's because like, they should be, it should be easy to find a kicker. And I think like the Jets have like taken something that's really not that hard to do and they've made it difficult. And you know, like I, know, like I said, like you always hear about letting Jason Myers go to Seattle but they could have found it. Like they could have replaced it. But they, that wasn't Joe Douglas. Mike McCagnan was the general manager when Myers went to Seattle. So you should be mad at McCagnan if you're upset with that. But I don't think the, the issue was letting Myers go. I think it's just what they've done since then, where they've been resigned with Sam Fick. And then I never understood why the NFL was so obsessed with Corey Bedvick. Like, you know, the Jets got him in that disaster. He had the disaster game against Buffalo, you know, arguably cost them the game. But prior to that, like, Minnesota traded for him, and like this guy, like wasn't even a good kicker in college. Um, so I mean, Douglas wasn't the only guy who who missed on him, but I just like I, I don't understand why why Douglas has been so bad at finding kickers the last couple of years. And I think like that's one of the few areas where like I can say like he's done a bad job there. Yeah, and it's uh, I'm actually glad that you brought up kickers because anybody that listens to this podcast knows that I'm obsessed with the kickers, and I think that we need one and. I was not upset when Jason Myers went because he got a big contract in Seattle, and it's like, I'm right there with you. It is very easy to find a competent kicker in the league. And then when you read those stats back, it just blows my mind that we roll out Sam Ficken over and over. And again, it looks like we were potentially going into Sam Ficken. And perhaps in August we'll find somebody if they're not kicking well. But really, this is not the guy that I want to invest, you know, possible game-on-the-line opportunity for Sam Ficken when there are real veterans in the league and last year, I was stamping my feet for one player, Rodrigo Blankenship, and with the last pick, that's who I wanted to get. He was on the board. The Jets didn't sure. take him. They traded for Quincy Wilson, who ended up not panning out. Rodrigo Blankenship has a great year. This year, I'm obsessed with the hicker, kicker, Jose Borregales, who was the Lou Groza Award winner, and he was available every single pick. He ended up going undrafted, ended up signing with the Bucks. but I really wanted him, and I didn't even have a close second. Evan McPherson would have been my second favorite kicker, um, 
Chris Nagger wasn't specifically on the list, but then when you, you know, you have him in camp here, he is an undrafted guy. And like you said, the reason that you go for these guys later on is because they aren't drafted early. So when you're drafting a kicker in the seventh round, you're potentially getting the best kicker in all of college football. Same with the fullback and the positions that you were set. You're going for the best guy. And it's like the rare, it's like one of the, it's, there are a few spots where you actually have, you know, we, I just mentioned that like most of the guys you draft rounds five, round six, round seven, odds are very much against them. At those positions, you actually have a legitimate shot of getting a player. Because you're going for the best one. And so for me, it was like, why invest pick 226 when we had that, you know, why invest that in a guy that probably won't end up making the team when you can get a guy who very well could be the best kicker in the draft, could be a starter for a very long time and would be a replacement for a player that is, in my opinion, just not very good in Sam Ficken. And maybe he can get better and maybe Brant Boyer sees something in him in practice. But even if you see a bunch of good kicks going in in practice, if it's not happening in the games, does it really matter? Even if he's like, well, oh, this guy's dynamite on the practice field. <laughs> but that that's matter. what I go, I mean, that's what I go back to, you know, when I was talking about Elijah Moore, about how you have to test him out in preseason because it's so different being in, this, in that practice field and training camp versus being in an actual stadium with guys actually bearing, the, you know, you don't, you can't, it's very difficult to recreate the game experience in training camp practices these days. You know, the, the CBA really limits the amount of hitting you can do. Preseason is really your, your one opportunity to simulate a game situation now as you're preparing for the season. Yeah. And hopefully he gets ample opportunity. I personally am rooting for Chris Nagar because when you see Sam Ficken, you already kind of have a bad taste in your mouth from some of the bad games he's had. And this guy is totally no blemishes. We drafted him. He comes out and has a good preseason. We could potentially just be totally confident in him. And, you know, it's just a nice feeling that you forget. This is why kicker is so important because that feeling when you come in for like a 35 yard field goal, when you really need it in a game, when you have a good kicker versus a bad kicker, the feeling that you feel for like the 40 seconds before the kick of just like, oh, no, I can't believe it. we're going to miss this right now. And just having that pit in your stomach versus having when we had Nick Folk or Jason Myers who were just locked down. You're like, oh, we got this. It's a totally different thing, and it just makes the game day experience so much less stressful. And it just, like you said, it's so easy to find one. So I and that's really like, yeah, this is one of the things like I always talk about. I think like when I say like I don't like paying for kickers, like people get this idea that I don't think kicker is important. It, that's not it. It's just like you should you should be able to find a kicker. And I hope that they do, whether it's Chris Nagar, whether it's Sam Ficken or whomever else, whether, you know, Ross Martin comes back and tries again, as long as whoever's in there is a good kicker, they are available. So that is a big one. So we basically went through all the players. I don't think I missed anybody in the draft. I mean, we kind of glossed over that, the fifth and sixth rounders, but got a pretty good feel for your opinions on the draft. Sounds like you're like me. You're excited with everything that happened. Do you have any final thoughts on the draft class as a whole or anything that Joe Douglas or the team is doing? You know, I'm as optimistic as I've been in a long time as a Jets fan. You know, I think that heading into 2020, you knew that it was going to be a rough year. I mean, it just seemed like all the signs were pointing to it not being such a great year, but you saw on the horizon that things were going to get better because the Jets had all the draft capital, they had all the cap space. And Joe Douglas will see how effective his signings are. But for the most part, it seems like he understands value. And as we talked about early in the show, there's a clear plan here. Build in the trenches, build around the young quarterback. These are things we did not see with Sam Darnold. These are things we haven't seen with the Jets in a long time. So 
I'm very hopeful about the Jets' future right now. It's, 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 I'm as optimistic about the Jets' future as I've been in a very long time. And I'm right there with you, and I said the same thing, is that this is the time when you have to be as optimistic as ever because it's all it really is all so new when you look at everything because we have so many young players. We drafted, I think it was 9 or 10. We ended up drafting 9 players last year, 10 this year, so that's 19 guys that are drafted. you got a bunch of undrafted guys. We bring in a bunch of players on one-year deals. We have a new general manager for the most part. We have a brand-new coaching staff, and that means that everybody that isn't a rookie and was already here is technically going to be asked to do a slightly different role than they ever were before because we're doing a slightly different offense and a different defense. And so when it comes down to it, you really can't point to a guy and be like, I know what he's going to do because everybody's job is going to change. Even a guy like Marcus May, who you kind of have a really good feel for, his job is probably going to change within this team. And so when you see that, but you believe in the general manager, and it's hard not to believe in this coach, at least hearing him talk. It's like, I would run through a wall for this guy also because he just gets me fired up. And when you see these pieces in line and all the culture pieces that they're bringing in, it's hard not to be optimistic because it really could go either way, but you know, you root for these guys. They're so easy to root for. Something very subtle, I think, is you're you're optimistic now. I think you, I, like a lot of the listeners, we're optimistic right now. This time last year, we were trying to talk ourselves into it. We were saying, well, maybe Gase can figure it out. You know, maybe things will go better. For we, there's, there's a big difference between genuinely believing things are going to go well and hoping and trying to talk yourself into it. And I think right now we're at the point where most of us are genuinely believing this thing's heading in the right direction. And that's a really good point because that is exactly right. And we really were, and now we're sitting here and it makes sense. It's like, yeah, we should feel good because at least on paper. And when you look at it, it looks like it's being built the right way. And I can't wait to see it. I'm going to be doing this podcast every, I'm doing bi-weekly episodes in the off season, unless something comes up and we do, you know, fill in another day, obviously the softball schedule we know is going to be a little crazy coming up. So, you know, uh, follow on Twitter for, updates on that but that's what I got for this episode I really appreciate you coming on and talking Jets with me I always love talking to you about this stuff and love your input on everything oh anytime Dan it's always great chatting with you that's why we you know we're glad to have you on on our team again Green Nation yeah I'm loving it there it's going very well and uh of course follow John B on Gang Green Nation he posts a bunch of articles he's got all sorts of stuff going on there manages the whole thing his brainchild and then although he doesn't take doesn't take uh, responsibility for what the people say in the comments section. We have some very angry, <laughs> some bitter Jets fans on Gang Green Nation, but a very passionate group of people. And then you can find his podcast, Locked On Jets, available. I think that's basically everywhere now, right? Yes, it is. I believe so. Yeah, we, we're having we're having a few issues with with Apple Podcasts right now, but we're trying to get those sorted out. But you can find it anywhere. Yeah, so awesome podcast available every day. It's the one podcast that you know is going to be there when something happens you know you're going to have one the next day, and you don't have to wait around for a podcast. And That's why people listen, Dan. It's, um, there's an old episode of Seinfeld where um, Jerry and George Costanza are coming up with an with a idea for a TV show. Costanza comes up with the most ridiculous idea, and Jerry goes, why, well, why would anybody watch it? And Costanza goes, because it's on TV. Why do people listen to Locked On Jets? Because it's there well, it's, every day. <laughs> it's a good show. You're not giving yourself enough credit, but definitely check that out, and I'm sure – We'll be uh, doing another podcast together in the future. Thank you again for joining me, John. This was fun. My pleasure. Can't wait to do it again, Dan. And good, got- good luck on this, good luck this year in softball. I mean, there are, there are two teams that we're all rooting for this year, the Jets and your softball team. You got it. Absolutely. I'm holding second base down. I don't bat very high. I'm like the eighth batter or so, so kind of a liability there, but I'm a good fielder. Lockdown glove, and 
you know, we'll see what can happen. My team's not very good. But that means that means that means your team could have an advantage with you in the eight hole. You know, you turn over to the top of the lineup, but having a hitter like you at, at batting eighth is a big advantage for your team. And so I call it second top. When we start getting back there, it's like, oh yeah, now we basically built in a second top of the lineup that we can do right before the top of the lineup. This is the Jet Life. Come for the Jets analysis. Stay for the softball breakdown. <laughs> that is not. A, I will not be doing that. But <laughs> but I do appreciate the uh, the time and everything. So thank you again, John. Take care, Dan.